0: Well, good morning, church. It's good morning. Good to see everybody here. And uh, so I am going to be preaching from Micah this morning, taking a one-week break from uh, Genesis. Uh, Pastor Ted's going to continue the series next week, uh, back in Genesis. I thought of this message for a while. It's been on my heart. In fact, Micah... Uh, The book of Micah, specifically chapter 6, verse 6 to 8, has been on my heart. And uh, it's not an easy verse to understand sometimes because it's so vast, right? What does it mean to act justly or to do justice? What does it mean to love kindness? And what does it mean to walk humbly with your God? Well, let's begin with this question. What does the Lord require? Have you ever thought of that? When you think of some of your own responsibilities, what do you think about? Do you think about some of the roles that you're called to, things that you do? What, uh, what are some of the tasks that you need to accomplish during the day? What about relationships? Who am I responsible for? What is required of you? Maybe you are a mother, a father, a husband, a wife. What are you required to do? A child, a student, a worker, employer, employee, citizen, a coach, a player, assistant, administrator. Roles are not merely job titles. They are a means to understand our responsibility. Who should take care of what, right? Right? And in essence, if you are a Christian today, the main role that you have is disciple of Jesus Christ. It's not ministry leader, it's not pastor, it's not deacon, it's not elder, it's not anything else. It's disciple of Jesus Christ. You know, in this world, we, we at times ask what we're responsible for and we, we run from it. At other times, we embrace the responsibility. Do you know what the Lord requires from you? Do you know what your responsibilities are in Christ Jesus? And today, that is what we are going to discuss. This is what we are going to talk about. In Micah chapter 6, and this is where the next slide is, we're going to look straight directly at verse 6 and verse 7. You see, the book of Micah was written during a time uh, when the people of Israel were struggling to do what was good in God's eyes. They had fallen, they had failed, they had, many of them had, had fallen the world, followed the world, followed their nations around them. And in chapter 6, uh, verse 6 to 7, it, it kind of draws uh, this, this kind of um, a bunch of questions, rhetorical questions, but questions that Micah would have represented the people to ask God. And, and, and here are some of those questions. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? You think that's sarcastic or is it real? What do you think? Well, let's keep reading. Uh, Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Uh, With with calves a year old? Will will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? And and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn uh, for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The author here, uh, you know, Micah is basically representing the people to ask God these questions, but I'm not sure how sincere it is because it's, it's rooted in ritual religiosity. It's, ri- it's rooted in, in what can I do? What should I do? How can I get rid of sin? How, oh, Lord, you are so powerful, but what can I do to appease your anger? What can I do? And he starts from small to big, right? Burnt offerings and calves a year old was something that was required in the Old Testament. Would the the Lord, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? You know, Solomon offered thousands of rams and cattle during the dedication of the temple. I think about 22,000. That's a lot. And so the, the, the people of God are saying, what should I do to... To please you, God. What is required? Or 10,000 rivers of oil. It's common uh, to understand that the grain offering needed some oil. It didn't need a lot of oil, but it needed some oil to be offered. But this is a little bit of an exaggeration, don't you think? Rivers of oil? 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn? Even what is it going to take? King Ahaz sacrificed his son. Ammonites would also sacrifice their children to their God. Lowercase God. So my question for us this morning, as before we get into this text, is what is required as a Christian? what What is required from God in your life? What does he require of you? Well, let's read the verse here. It says, he has told you, O man, what is good. What is good? God has already established it. Verse 8. You don't need to tell him what is good. He's already told you. And what does the Lord require of you? So the requirement and the goodness, if there's a question. Because so often we think requirement is a burden. Oh, I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to do this, I got to do that. But what's, what's the reward? Would we ever think that the goodness of God is actually the requirement that God has? And the requirement that God has is actually his goodness to us. We think about that. Think about what that means. But to do justice and to love mercy and love kindness, has said, and to walk humbly with your God. These three things you so often think of like, wow, these are huge topics, especially in this world. So often we fall short of these three categories and especially when I read these verses and I read this last part of this verse and I find myself challenged by it. So what has God told you? What is good? The next slide here says this. Well, before we get there, the big idea, the big idea is you and I need to know what God requires from us in order to experience his good purpose for us. You and I need to know what God requires from us in order to experience his good purpose for us. So what is good? Good. What is good? Deuteronomy 10, verse 12 to 13 says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. The requirement of God is actually for our good. The Christian life is not burdensome. It is hard. It is difficult. It is not easy, but it is not burdensome because God Himself has provided us what is required and what is good for you and me. What is good is what is required. To fear God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve him. You see, that's as simple as it gets, right? What is good? God has already told us what is good, and that is what is required. So, what does God require us to do specifically? Let's dive into the text here to do justice. To do justice. And that is do what is right. The word required of you here is the Hebrew dores, which means to claim as due. To demand an account. To investigate. To do something. And justice here is the Hebrew word mishpat, which determines the rights and the assignments of rewards and punishments. Judgment of what is law and what is right. That's what it means. Simple as that. What is right? But we live in a world right now where right is wrong and wrong is right, or maybe wrong is wrong and right is right. I don't know, depending on how everyone thinks. And, 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 and this is the problem. And we get into this, like, like, mental schizophrenia, and we're just thinking, is that person saying, like, is that what the, that person, we don't know what is right and wrong at times. And we, we forget that, that the definition of right has to be come, coming from something outside of this world. Someone that is greater than us. Someone who actually established a standard for us in his word. That is God himself. We need to recognize that right, the definition of right, comes from him. And justice is doing what is right. Which, by the way, if I might just say... Justice includes doing what is right in loving mercy. You cannot divorce the two. You can't just say, I, I, I love justice, but you know what? I, I'm going to stay away from mercy. And you can't just say, I, I love mercy, but then I, I, I'm just going to not participate in justice. By the way, why do you think it says do justice and not love justice? Because so often we think about justice, we probably love aspects of justice, but it's hard to do justice. It's hard to actually do it. It's hard to do the right thing. And by the way, not just the right thing, but the right thing in the right way, because God cares about that too. Right? So like the question is, why does this text talk about doing justice and why is it such a challenge for us? To do what is right. To do what is right. Don't be afraid to do what is right. We live in a world that is uh, constantly pressuring us to do what is wrong. But I want to speak to the men in this room uh, for a moment. Part of what God has called men to do is to lead by example. And leading by example often is a difficult thing. I tremble in fear because I just don't know how to do this or whether or not I'm doing this right or whether or not I'm actually right in doing this. And, and a lot of times my question in my mind is, am I right before God and can I lead my family? Can I uh, uh, write, do the right things in this world? And I just want to just challenge the men in this, in this room that unless you seek and do the right things according to God's purposes, you'll never really experience what it means to live as a right man before God. It's closely tied When Adam and Eve were in the garden and then Eve gave the fruit to Adam, Adam didn't say, let's stop this right now. He caved in. He didn't stand in front of her. He He stood behind her when she had to face the serpent herself. How can we as a society and as a church grow if men are not willing to stand in front And actually say what is right and say what is wrong. And and brothers, we need to do this as a band of brothers. Ain't no one by themselves. We are together. And for the ladies and teens and children here, like it's the same thing. We need to follow the Lord. We need to do what is right in his eyes. We need to act justly. We need to act justly. There's some examples in scripture about this Isaiah 42, verse 1 to 4. This is um, talking specifically about this uh, servant who's the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Isaiah says this of him Behold, my servant. Whom I uphold, Yahweh says this, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit on him. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Now notice like this, in a time of Isaiah, there are many, many tyrannical kings He will not do that. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. It's talking about Jesus here. The justice of Jesus, the justice of Jesus, specifically in three stories. I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, verse 12 to 14. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you make it a den of robbers. Jesus here drove out the money changers. And I've always saw saw the story or read the story as, wow, Jesus is really mad. Like, I don't think I should be like that at times. I don't want to flip tables, right? But you know why he did it? It's because for the glory of his father. And you know what? It's not, you know, when Jesus was, people attacked him and offended him. He didn't try to attack back. But when it had to do with other people the sick, the poor, the marginalized, and when it had to do with his father's glory, and he said, my house shall be called the house of prayer, he was serious. Flip those tables. Get out of here. This is the justice of Jesus. This is the justice of God, and this is what we need to stand for. We need to stand for the purity and the holiness of God. And you know, he said the den of robbers because when the people came to temple, especially after the diaspora and the, the Jewish people came to Jerusalem, to, to the temple, to worship, it was in, during, in the temple courts where they would actually have uh, you know, these, um, uh, these sales. Some of them would have to pay a temple tax and they would have to exchange I think it's called the drachma, but like you have to do all of that in 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 the temple area. But there was a lot of mischief. There was a lot of exchanging and and probably selling of pigeons and doves and up um upping the price because people were coming from afar. That's why Jesus said, "You den. This is a you, don't make my house into a den of robbers." You see, we need to be. Uh, associating ourselves with the passionate justice of Jesus Christ. And yes, he had the authority to do that because he's the son of God. But let me ask you, what authority do you have in your circle, in your, the place that you're in, where you're maybe not necessarily flipping tables, but you're standing for what is right, and you're holding firm to the justice of God? A second example would be, please turn with me to Mark chapter 7, verse 1 to 12. Mark 7, verse 1 to 12. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled and is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not... Uh, eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come out to the from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Verse 8 You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting. <laughs> You have a fine way, you have a mischievous kind of spiritually accolading way of just trying to uh, reject the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do, many such things you do, many such things you do. This is the reality. Corbin was something that was given to God because it was, it was their tradition to say, I'm going to set aside some money or some resources in order to give to God. But, but, but the problem is that they were saying that the Pharisees and the scribes were saying that in order to avoid honoring the parents. Ooh, think about that. I'm going to try to pretend that I'm just so close to God and pretend that I can do all this stuff. And God is going to be so happy. And he requires me to give Corbin. And so therefore, I've done that. So mom and dad, you can go and find your own. Your, hopefully your retirement savings is going to do enough. You know, like think about it, right? Like, think about this. Jesus is at the heart of of talking about those practical things. And this is what we need to do. I don't even know if I have enough time for this message because I'm only on the first point. But listen, like, I'm actually concerned. Jesus is so... Jesus is concerned, and he said, for the sake of your tradition, you neglect the commandment of God. Do we have traditions that take us away from the commandment of God? That we love that tradition, we love what we're doing, we, we love how it looks uh, uh, in front of other people, but we're actually disobeying God in private? We're dishonoring our families, we're dishonoring our homes, we're we're causing arguments in our home, we're mishandling money. Finally, Luke 18 verse 1 to 8. Let's go there quickly. Luke 18 verse 1 to 8. Jesus here specifically talks about uh, the parable of the widow. The widow representing the poor, disenfranchised, uh, and uh, those who are suffering injustices. Eighteen, verse 1 to 8, and he told them this parable to the effect that they always ought to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to him, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give justice so that she will not beat me down. By her continual coming. And the Lord said, "Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth?" This particular passage is talking about prayer, is the persistent prayer of the widow persistent even like when you think about it like in in a worldly sense will an unrighteous judge just get fed up and say okay well i'll give justice but think about this we have a godly judge we have a we have a we have a judge who is righteous and holy and who and who quickly gives us and shows us justice and mercy Will he not do that? Justice belongs to God. And Jesus is reminding us this. It belongs to him. And he, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. My question for us this morning, just like Jesus is talking about God the Father giving justice to those oppressed, are we speedy in giving justice? Are we speedy in doing what is right in this community? Are we speedy in in coming up with good ideas to help with social justice issues within our community? Or are we too comfortable? God does not call us to a life of comfort. God does not call us to a life that just says, I think I can do this. But if it's not in in, in my schedule, if it's not according to my ways, if it's not just something that I'm willing to do, I won't do it. God calls us to risk-taking. Like I mean, risk-taking, that is calculated. You know what it's calculated by? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And you calculate that, you get the depth and the mercy and the justice and the holiness of God. You have people going into this world doing stuff they've never done before. And that's what we need to do. We need to have that passion to do justice. And the second point here is God requires us not only to do justice, but to love kindness. Notice it doesn't say do kindness or like act kindly. It says love kindness. You know why? Because many of us probably feel that at times we have done Some kind acts. We have done merciful acts. Acts of mercy. But it's very hard to love mercy. It's very hard to say, I actually love to do mercy. I love to be kind. I love to love. The word here, it's a combination of two Hebrew words. Uh, The two Hebrew words is um, ahava, which is to have great affection and loyalty, to be passionate about something. And mercy is chesed, which is the obligation to kindness and faithfulness to others, proofs of mercy and kindness. So loving kindness is literally passionately merciful, passionately kind. Here are some examples of Jesus and how he loved mercy. Let the little children come to me, Jesus said. Let the little children come to me. You know, they, they were, uh, his disciples were seeing like all, you know, the crowds around them and children coming to, to him and, and they were trying to stop them. And Jesus says, no, let the little children come to me. For such is the kingdom belongs to them. And then have mercy on us. Matthew 20, verse 29 to 34. Let's turn there really quickly here. Matthew chapter 20, verse 29 to 34. Another miracle of Jesus And when they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting on the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called out to them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said To him, Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Jesus was a very busy man, busier than all of us combined, probably, but yet he stopped and he pointed and he specifically said, What do you need? What do you need? At the heart of Jesus is loving kindness, passion for other people. And their needs. A passion to show. Not out of obligation. Not out of like pat on the back. Oh good job. But to really meet the needs of other people. How have you and I met the needs of other people? Mark chapter 1 verse 20 Oh, sorry, verse 40 to 42 says this. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Again, Jesus was moved with pity. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. It, it, this is amazing This leper kneeled towards him, said, if you will, you can make me clean. You see, Jesus is in the business of loving other people to meet them where they are. Luke chapter 7, verse 11 to 14. It's 11 to 17. Soon afterward... He went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and his, the, a great cloud went with him. And he drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable cl- crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he, said, then he came up and touched the bier. And the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them. And they glorified saying, God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. This is amazing. Jesus says, do not weep. Oh, we live in a world so often where we neglect the situation of families and just say, "Well, you know, this has happened to this person." Have you ever thought that there's a whole family behind that person's sickness? Have you ever thought there's this there's a whole situation behind that person's uh, uh, mental health issue? Have you ever thought that people around them, the family members are suffering just as much as that person is suffering? Have you ever found, have you ever realized that that is happening? Because I think that's what Jesus wants us to know. He wants us to know that it is this widow who, who, this is probably the last family member she has. That Jesus himself would, out of his compassion and pity upon this family, say, I want to raise this son up. That's the heart of Jesus. I know we cannot raise anyone up from the dead. But we can most certainly make visits to hospitals. That we most certainly go make a phone call and spend 15, 20, 30, an hour, sometimes two, talking with somebody Crying out to God on their behalf, reading scripture, sending over food, helping them. We need to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Jesus rose again from the dead and he promised us the Holy Spirit, not so that we could sing songs in a church like this and, and, and just kind of feel comfortable. He called us by the power of his Holy Spirit to be his hands and feet, to go into a world to have compassion as he has compassion. That's what we should do. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 to 37. I won't read this, but this is the story of a short man, very familiar passage for me. And he Zacchaeus goes up a tree. I would never go up a tree to, to, to try to find something. That's so embarrassing. I'd never do that. Some of my taller friends would think that, you know, this is a perfect story for me. No, but it is an act of faith, right? And then Jesus goes and he sees Zacchaeus. And many of these people are like, um, you have a crowd of people that are just like right there, right in front of you. Yet you see this guy hanging from a tree. He's a tax collector. He's a sinner. He's robbed people of their money. And you want to hang out with him? You want to hang out, not just hang out for a couple hours. He stayed with him at his home. Like this is powerful. Like how far would you go? What would you do? What would you do to show compassion and love for somebody? What would you do for someone who has sinned multiple times but is trying to seek after God? Will you say, you know what, get yourself um, right, go to AA, do whatever you need to do, get yourself right, then come to church, then come to First Step, then do all this stuff, then get right with God, and then get baptized? No, listen, we need to go to the world and say, you need to repent. We We need to show you who Jesus is. And let me spend some time with you because I love you and I love to show kindness towards you. That's what Jesus requires from us. That's what God requires from us, right? John 4 verse 4 to 14. We won't go into this text, but it's the woman at the well, right? Will you give me a drink? Jesus says, will you give me a drink? He knew exactly her situation. And yet he asked her a question in order to start a conversation so that she would know him and that she would truly understand the kingdom of God and what true worship is. Wow. What questions are you asking in loving kindness to your neighbors and your friends in order to help them to see the true God and to know the true God, you know, Jesus could have just said, "You know what? Like like everyone else, I'm not going to go at the noon uh, uh, in the middle of the day because that's when that woman is there and everyone else is avoiding her." We need to go places where other people are avoiding. I was on the phone. Um, about a month ago with a, a lady who uh, works in a community. Um, I'm not going to say the community, but it's, it's, it's in, in an area where it's affected by crime and drugs and uh, a lot of violence. And I, I talked to this lady on the phone several times and she said to me, Andrew, there's no church there. And all the people that they see on a regular basis outside of their community and the five uh, metro housing, co- uh, the complex down there is, are, are just cops and that they're just in and out. And a lot of times the cops don't care. There hasn't been a community program in our building for over two years because of COVID. There's so much darkness in this place. There's so much evil. There's so much strife. So many mental health issues. Andrew, will your church be involved? And I can tell you this. I was nervous. Because there's a lot of steps to kind of getting involved in the community, right? But it didn't, it just dawned on me. God has people everywhere by the way, she's a believer, she's a Christian. God places people everywhere to start a fire in our hearts to love mercy and to do things that like we wouldn't expect to do. We need to love mercy. Are we tempted to write off the culture? I'm not talking about cancel culture. I'm talking about canceling the culture. We're tempted to just throw in the towel to say, this is not my responsibility to touch those who are far away, who are lost, who are evil. That's for someone else to do. That's for the cops to do. That's for the social workers to do. That's for those who are in specialized health care to do. No, it isn't. It's for us to do. It's for us to do. It's for us to participate in the loving kindness of God through Jesus Christ. I haven't gotten there yet, but I'm going to get there to the gospel. But this is what we need to do. We need to have that passion in our heart to love those who are lost. We cannot forget them. We can't cancel the culture just because the culture cancels us or just because the culture is like just filled with ways of pushing us aside. We cannot cancel them. We need to glorify God through the preaching of repentance to a nation that would, at the end, repent and turn to God. Think of Jonah and Nineveh. Think of Jonah and Nineveh. Finally, God requires us to do justice. Love kindness and walk humbly with him. I'll read this one more time. Matthew uh, Micah six verse eight. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to justice, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The word here, walk humbly, is not just about humility. It is about the closeness. If I had a volunteer right now, I would ask this volunteer. I'm not going to ask you to come up, but if you were just to walk along the stage, and I would try to follow you, it's pretty easy because it's from there to there. You're not going to run, right? you're going to walk. It's easy. But there are some people who are a lot taller than me. And when they walk, I need to run. Like it's, it's the reality, but I have to keep up. And the reality of this is the Hebrew word here means to keep up with God. It means to do his will. It means not (laughs) sorry. So often we, we, we don't walk in God's will. We do our own thing and we think that's God's will. And we assume it. And the psalmist talks about the sin of presumption. We should never presume upon God. We should never just say, oh yeah, I go to church, I do this, I do this. No. What does the Lord require? He requires from us to walk humbly with him. And there are many times in my life I have to repent. I have to say, God, I'm not walking humbly with you. I'm so proud. I am so selfish. I have, uh, I have done things according to my own way. I only want the affirmation of other people. Walking humbly with your God means keeping in step with him. Coming close to him. Communing with him. Being with him. The next slide here is um, examples Enoch and Noah. Genesis 5, verse 22 to 24, 6 to 9, speaks of Enoch walking with God. Noah, a righteous man walking with God. David, a man after God's own heart, walked according to his commandments. Jehoshaphat, which in 2 Chronicles 17, 3 to 4, specifically, God says, Jehoshaphat was a man who walked after David's path, which is after David's God, which is after God's own heart, right? Josiah. Second Chronicles thirty four eight years old he became uh, the the uh, the king of Israel and then afterwards he reigned for thirty one years but on the eighth year of his reign when he was sixteen years old he made a judgment and he specifically said you need to throw away all these metal objects all of these idols sixteen years old or maybe I think it was twelve so maybe twelve years so it's. 18 years old. You can check the text, but that's what happened. He was 18 years old. He was willing to do that. He was willing to stand up for what was right. You see, walking with God is not a fuzzy feeling. Say, I do my devotions and I have meditate on his word. That is good and all that. But walking with the Lord according to the whole Old Testament has a lot to do with your fear of him, with your obedience to him, to walk in his ways. Because the closer you walk with God, the more you will realize that your life belongs to him and you'll do whatever it takes to follow him. Whatever it takes. That's why I can't hold myself. Because at times I just wonder, I just wonder, Lord, am I doing that? Am I, am, am, am I wasting my life? Or am I truly following you? And there's it's areas of struggle where I realize I'm like, wow, I'm not following you. My pride is coming up again. I'm not walking humbly with God. But the Lord has given us this... Uh, this good news here, this is the next slide, and I'll close with this and then a story. So what is required? To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly, that's our requirement, eh? That's, that's our requirement of, from God to us, but then let's think about what is good. I just described what is good from Deuteronomy 12. What is good is to walk in his commandments, and that he has shown us this requirement so that you know what is good and that is good for us. But what else is good? This is what he's already done on the cross. He established these three things in the gospel. Justice was satisfied. The the wrath and the punishment that was for our sin, he satisfied that punishment. Justice was done at the cross. And the, the loving kindness Of God was realized through the cross as well. Ephesians chapter two, verse four to five says this: "But God, being rich in mercy, because of because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." The loving kindness of God is so vast. Why are we complaining about buying someone coffee or doing, you know, making that extra, uh, you know, drive to some person's place to help them? What, it, 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 is it really bothering our uh, sense of uh, independence? Look what Christ did for us. It was realized, but not only that, relationship was actualized. Turn with me, Luke 23, verse 44 to 6, and then we'll go there right now. Luke chapter 23, verse 44 to 46. When Jesus breathed his last. Says this. And it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sunlight failed. And uh, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Thus Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. The curtain was torn in two. We cannot walk humbly with God unless God has come to us and shown us a way to him. We we can't walk humbly with God unless God has already shown us a relationship that is actualized at the cross. That that temple curtain was torn with the separation of the Holy of Holies and that was torn. So now you have full access to God because of what Christ has done on the cross for dying for our sins. That's the power of what it means to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. This is doable. It is doable because we have the goodness of God in the gospel. I don't usually do this, but I'm going to read a story and uh it's about four minutes long, but I wanted to just share with you about Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom, as many of you have read, probably the, the, the book called Hiding Place. Uh, she was uh, she was famous for hiding Jews during uh, the Nazi concentration the Nazi concentration camps and how she would hide them and keep them away from danger. She had a really good relationship with her father, and she worked at a watch shop. She was part of the watchmaking business, and this is what she said. Some of my happiest days came when I des- it was decided that I could work in the shop as an assistant to my kindly bearded father. I loved being with him, and I loved the shop itself. It had a very special atmosphere, and gradually I began to overcome my shyness and insecurity in meeting people. And I enjoyed selling the watches and clocks to our customers. There were many ups and downs in the watchmaking business. Father loved his work, but he was not a money maker. At times were very hard. they were often very hard. Once, I remember, we were faced with a real financial crisis. A large bill had to be paid and there was, simp- there was simply not enough money. Then one day, a well-dressed gentleman came into the shop and asked to see some very expensive watches. I stayed in the shop and prayed with one ear tuned to the conversation to the front room. Hmm, this is a fine watch, Mr. Tenboom. The customer said, turning at a very costly timepiece over in his hands. This is what I've been looking for. Cori Ten Boom held her breath and she said, As I saw the affluent customer reached into his inner pocket and pull out a thick wad of bills, praise the Lord, Cash. I saw myself paying the overdue bill and being relieved of the burden of anxiety I had been carrying for the past week. The customer looked at the watch admiringly and commented. I had a good watchmaker here in Harlem. His name was Van Houten. Perhaps you knew him. Father nodded his head. He almost knew immediately who that was. And he knew everyone in Harlem, especially the other watchmakers. When Van Houten died and his son took over the business, I kept on doing business with the young man. However, I bought a watch from him that didn't run at all. This is the rich man saying this. I sent it back three times, but he couldn't fix it. That's why I decided to go to another watchmaker. Will you show me the watch, please? father said the rich man took a large watch out of his vest and gave it to the father now let me see father said opening the back of the watch he adjusted something and handed it back to the customer there that was a very little mistake it will be fine now sir I trust the young watchmaker Someday, that's what he said. The father said, I trust that young uh, watchmaker. Don't, don't, don't disregard him. The, the competition, that is. Someday he will be as good as his father. So if you ever have a problem with one of his watches, come to me and I'll help you out. Now I shall give you back your money and you can return my watch. I was horrified. I saw Father take back the watch and give and give the money to the customer. Then he opened the door for him and bowed deeply in his old-fashioned way. My heart was Corey Ten Boom said. My heart was where my feet should be as I emerged from the shelter of the workshop. Papa, how could you? Father looked at me patiently through his steel-rimmed glasses. Corey. He said, you know that I brought the gospel at the burial of Mr. Van Houten. Corey, what do you think that young man would have said when he heard that one of his good customers had gone to Mr. Ten Boom? Do you not think that the name of the Lord would be honored? As for the money, trust the Lord, Corey. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he will care for us. I felt ashamed and I knew the father was right. I wondered if I could ever have that kind of trust instead of blind determination to follow my own stubborn path. Could I really learn to trust God? Yes, father, I answered quietly. Whom was I answering? My earthly father or my heavenly father? Corey ten Boom learned this from her father. That, his, that her father did justice, did what was right. When he found out that the watch was broken, the first thing he did was try to fix it. And when he could fix it, the th- second thing he did was return the money because he didn't need to get a new one. Now, the, the rich man could have said, I want two. That, that, that's a different story. But the point of the story is that there is integrity. There is goodness. There is doing what is right. And then there's also loving kindness. Van Houten, the father of that other store, uh, died. And now the son was left on his own. And being inexperienced, he didn't know how to fix watches, the the watches well. And Mr. Temboon said... Continue being a a, a customer over there. But if there's any problems, come over here and I'll fix it for you. He could have just said, you know what? You probably need a better watch. So over there, they're not that reliable. So why don't you come over here? He loved mercy for those around him. He loved to have mercy upon people. And finally, he walked humbly by saying to Corey, trust in the Lord. Does he not own 10,000 cattle on a hill? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, teach us, oh God, to make this passage practical in our lives and help us, oh God, to trust that this is what you require from us. Show us, O Lord, that you are good and that you will lead us to do what is required for your glory and for the good of many other people. In Jesus' name.